together. Father, our prayer now is that you would give us that blessing. Make us those who trust you, those whose strength is in you, those who dwell in your temple and ever sing your praise. We ask that you'd make, a, make this so for us through Christ, by the power of your spirit, through your word today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 84. We'll look together at this text that we have just sung. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about this documentary that my wife and I have been watching. It's, it's called OJ Made in America. And it, is certainly, it certainly comes with a parental advisory warning. It's a fascinating examination of the life of O.J. Simpson. And whatever you think about his guilt or innocence, which, you know, if you're up in the air on that question, just go watch the doctor documentary and decide for yourself. Whatever you think about that question, you can agree with me on this. This is a man who had everything. He was phenomenally wealthy. He was married to a beautiful woman. He lived in a mansion in an exclusive neighborhood in Los Angeles. He had any car he wanted. He, by the world standards, O.J. had it all. He was famous. He, even after his football career, he was, he was on television with uh, broadcasting football games. I don't remember which network he was with, but you, know, you, can, you can see him uh, in the announcer's book, down on the sideline, in announcer's booth, down on the sideline. He had everything. He had everything. And you can also agree with me on this. There is no correlation between wealth and status and influence and happiness. And O.J.'s testimony to it. He had everything and he was miserable. And, and his misery is seen in the fact that, well, for one thing, his marriage was a disaster. Whatever you think about whether or not he killed this woman, it's on record that he repeatedly beat her. So they had a rocky marriage, and then she left him. And his protest protestations aside, he was miserable over the fact that she left him. This is a man who had everything, and I think at the same time we can say he had nothing. And what Psalm 84 says to us, so what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at this morning is this dilemma that we all face in life, this question that we have in life. And the question it goes something like this, how can I seek my maximum pleasure in life in a way that doesn't ruin my life? That's what OJ was trying to do. OJ was trying to have it all. He wanted maximum joy. He wanted maximum pleasure, but he sought that in a way that ruined his life. Whatever you think about the outcome of the case, he was not happy before the case, he was not happy after the case, and he's in prison now for other crimes. So, so a, man who, a man can have it all and have nothing and be miserable. Uh, there's one philosopher who suggested, I have this quotation on my phone here that I want to read to you, he, he suggested that every adult life is defined by two love stories. 
And these love stories, this philosopher argues, are ultimately the search for love and affirmation. And we seek this love and affirmation one way through romance and sex. Another way we seek it is through success. But, but whether you're seeking it through success or through romance, what you're seeking is love and affirmation. That's what everybody is after. Psalm 84 is going to say to us that you can have that. You can seek your maximum pleasure in a way that doesn't ruin your life. And, and one of the dilemmas that people face is, often as they seek their maximum pleasure, it winds up being maybe good for them in a short-term kind of way, but then bad for everybody else concerned with their lives. And if everybody in the world sought pleasure this way, it would be ruination for the world. But what Psalm 84 says to us is, you can seek maximum joy in life, and you can seek it in such a way that if everybody else did this, it would be the best thing for the whole world. And ultimately, this is what is going to happen in the world. God is going to give his people the kind of maximum pleasure, all of them described in Psalm 84. So I'm not preaching health, wealth, prosperity here this morning, but the message of Psalm 84 is you can have it all. You can have it all this way. So if you would, look with me at, at Psalm 84. Um, just a sort of a, a side note here on the, the arrangement and the structure of the book of Psalms. We've been looking at Psalms 73 through 83, and those all carried the heading, a psalm of Asaph. Here in Psalm 84, we have this heading to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And 84 and 85 are of the sons of Korah, and then 86 is of David, and then 87 and 88 are of the sons of Korah as well. Uh, you may remember that earlier in the Psalter, when we came to Psalm 42, we had a psalm of the sons of Korah. And that psalm spoke of a man, Psalm 42, that's where we get that, that song that, that some of us used to sing, as the deer panteth for the water. So my soul longeth after thee. That's Psalm 42. That's also a psalm of the sons of Korah. And that psalm is similar to this one. Look at, look at Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. So if you remember Psalm 42, the psalmist was longing to return to Jerusalem to worship the Lord there. And here in Psalm 84... Same thing. He's longing to be in Jerusalem, worshiping the Lord. Uh, these first four verses of, of Psalm 84 are, are heavily focused on the temple. And the psalmist wants to go to the temple, but the temple isn't ultimately what it's about. You know, it's not like uh, we've known some, some people who who loved certain cities. You know, I've had friends who love San Francisco because of the food that they can have in San Francisco. And, and I know people who love Washington, D.C. because of the architecture in Washington, D.C. And then they love the cities of the world for the same reason. You know, they want to go to Rome to, to see the, 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 the ancient civilization that's reflected there. None of that is why this psalmist wants to go to Jerusalem. This psalmist wants to go to Jerusalem because under the Old Covenant, God indwelt the temple. So it's God 
that makes the psalmist want to go to Jerusalem. So he says, how lovely is your dwelling place there in verse 1, not because he's into architecture. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place because God is there. And, and that's the old covenant, you know, God indwells the temple in Jerusalem. In the new covenant, the apostle Paul says to us, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. So one new covenant analog to this is, how lovely is the church, oh Lord? If you feel that way, I think it's a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace that I prayed about and that Nathan prayed about. It's a miracle of God's spirit whereby the spirit of God has given you a new heart and made you alive so that you've turned from the love of sin and we might say the tense of the wicked to the love of holiness and the people of God where God is present. So the psalmist says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. He's going to tell us why he feels this way later. He says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. That's another reference that every one of these verses mentions the temple in some way. Dwelling place in verse 1, courts in verse 2. He says, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. This is bodily. Did you notice he says, my soul longs. This interior portion of him is longing for the Lord. And then his heart and his flesh, bodily, he feels this. In the inward part of himself and in the outward part, he wants God. And then he marvels at the way that God... I think the point of verse 3 is he's marveling at the way that God provides for everything. God makes everything right. I think that's why he says... Even the sparrow finds a home. You know, it's one of those things where, where it's like um, the argument that G.K. Chesterton said. G.K. Chesterton said, if you ask me why I believe in God, what piece of evidence points me to my belief in God? He said, I, my response is everything points to, to God. It all indicates that there's a God. And, and, and this is something of what Douglas Wilson was getting at when he referred to the engineering of the ankle. And this mysterious way whereby humans can maintain their balance. This is all evidence of a designer, a creator. And, and the psalmist is saying, look, even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And the mention of those altars... That, that points to this Old Covenant sacrificial system. Because even in the Old Covenant, you know, people, people haven't changed. Under the Old Covenant, under the New Covenant, people are sinners. We are transgressors. We cross boundaries. We do things we know we shouldn't do. Under the Old Covenant, there were these altars set up at the temple in Jerusalem. So you went to the temple for two reasons. You went there to be in the presence of God, and you went there to have your sins dealt with. You went there to offer the sacrificing so that the priest could make atonement so that you could be cleansed. That, that's why you went to the temple. Under the new covenant, same things hold. Here at the church, this is the place where God is present. God indwells individually and collectively believers. So God is present by his spirit with you as an individual believer and then when we gather, the Lord Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. God is present. So we come together to enjoy the presence of God together. And also, 
This is the place where your sins are dealt with. Because if you're a member of this church, what we're declaring to you is we believe that you have repented of your sins. We believe that Christ's death on the cross counts for you. And we believe that thereby you are forgiven and you are right with God. That's what we celebrate every week as we partake of of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a member of this church, what we're saying to you is, the church is saying to you, we don't think you're a believer. And if you're holding yourself out from membership in the church, you're saying, I'm not a believer. I'm not a believer, and I'm not with what's going on there. And so there's no atonement that counts for you. But you can have this. You can have this being made right with God, this justification. It comes by faith. All you have to do is turn from your sin, turn away from all that stuff that's going to kill you and ruin your life, and place your faith and hope in Jesus. We will gladly receive you into membership at this church. And and these altars will, will work for you, figuratively speaking. There's only one altar in the New Covenant, and that's the, the cross. And the sacrifice has been made, and it's over, and it's not repeated. Then he says in verse 4, so that reference to the altars is the reference to the the temple in verse 3. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So all four of these first verses, they all refer to the Lord's house. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. And the reason it's good to be there is because you get to sing God's praise. That's what makes it wonderful to be in God's house. And then notice at the end of verse 4, you have this little word in in the text I'm looking at. It's in italics. It says, Selah. This doesn't work in every psalm, but in Psalm 84, I think that little word Selah is marking off the structure of Psalm 84 for us. And it's it's telling us verses 1 through 4 is one unit. And that one unit in verses 1 through 4 is all focused on the psalmist wanting to go up to the temple in Jerusalem because he wants to experience the presence of God. There's something else that you might have noticed there in verse 4. It says, blessed are those. And that might remind you, it should remind you of Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the Torah of Yahweh and on his Torah, on the scriptures, he meditates day and night. Uh, so it's, it's, you're blessed if you're meditating on the scriptures, and you're blessed if you get to dwell in proximity to God's house, singing his praise. Verses 5 through 8, the focus is going to shift. It's going to shift away from wanting to go up to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple to the process of getting there. So every, verses five, 5, 6, and 7 all speak of this journey. And what we've got here is the experience of God's blessing through the difficulties of the journey. And and I think in some ways, the psalmist is is getting at the way that life is a kind of journey. Life is a kind of journey, and and when we think in terms of the big story of the Bible, uh, the end of the Bible that we read about, uh, that, that Nathan read earlier in the service, indicates that the new heavens and new earth are going to be almost like a cosmic temple. But there's not going to be a literal temple there, the passage said, because God and the Lamb are the temple. So it's almost like the whole world is the temple, 
And God and the Lamb are there, so there's no need of a particular shrine building type thing. And so we're all making our way toward that final new heavens and new earth temple, aren't we? And we want, verses 5 through 8, to be descriptive of our experience in getting there. So verse 5, the psalmist says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Blessed are those, this is the same thing he just said in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, same, same kind of language, Psalm 1 language. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. I mentioned those two love stories earlier. People are seeking love and affirmation through romance and sex and through success. And they're seeking to demonstrate their prowess in both places. They're seeking to demonstrate how, how dreamy they are. Through, through the attainment of this romantic love. Or they're seeking to demonstrate how, how good they are at everything through their success. Where's their strength? Their strength is in themselves. And what the psalmist is saying here is, blessed are those, happy are those, whose strength is in you. Happy are those, I mean, think about this. If you go after life that way, and you fail... It's devastating. That, that's what happened with OJ. OJ had all the success in the world by, in, through football, but then this is going to happen with every athlete. He gets to a certain age where it's just not feasible to keep playing. And then, he, he, yes, he wins this beautiful woman, but he can't maintain her love. He, she leaves him. And the, the losses are, are so overwhelming that they bring about what feels like irrecoverable ruin in our personal lives. It's no way to live. You don't want to live that way. You want to be somebody whose strength is in God. If you live that way, if you live as somebody of whom it can be said, blessed are you because your strength is in the Lord, that is a strength that will never fail you. That is a strength that you will never get too old for. That is a strength that you will never lose. That's why such people are blessed. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways, the pathways to Zion. I think what this is getting at is the way that, that in Israel, Deuteronomy 16.16 16 says, every male in Israel was, was to go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord there three times a year for the feasts of Passover and then the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles and then the Feast of Pentecost or Weeks. Uh, so three times a year, every male in Israel was to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the feast. And I think what this is getting at is saying, blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. This is a guy that wants to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. He wants to go there. The highways, the route is in his heart. It's engraved upon the tablet of his heart. And then verse 6 says, As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Now I think that the, the literal picture here is getting at a metaphorical or a figurative reality. And, and we don't... We don't know of a historical place referred to as the Valley of Baca. But, but this Hebrew word, Baca, it sounds like another Hebrew word that means weeping. So let's start with the literal image. 
If you're, if you're somebody who lives in the land of Israel and you're going to make this journey up to Zion, think about what this is going to entail. You're going to have to leave your home unprotected. And, and you're going to have to leave uh, your, your holdings. Maybe you've got flocks or herds. Maybe you've got uh, crops in the fields. All of that is going to be unguarded by you. What's going to enable you to be confident? Well, it's verse 5, isn't it? Blessed are those whose strength is in you. The strength is not in my confidence to protect my stuff back home somehow. You know, I can't have a police presence in the ancient world. I don't have an alarm system in ancient Israel, but I can trust the Lord, right? I can, I can, I can commit myself to God, and I can say, Lord, this is all yours, and I'm going to trust you to protect it. And then, uh, as they go through the Valley of Baca, as you make that journey, that pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you're probably going to, to go through some places that are dry and and unwatered, and that are hot, and that are uncomfortable, and that are difficult. And I think that literal picture is getting at this figurative reality that, that's perhaps connoted by the fact that this word baka sounds like the Hebrew word for weeping. And I think what the psalmist is getting at is when you go through times of affliction, when you go through times of pain, when you go through times of discomfort, when you go through times when your, your happiness, uh, if it were based on circumstances, would have fled you long ago. At that moment, these people whose strength is in the Lord, they make it a place of springs. The desert, the dry valley, it's a place of springs. How? Because their strength is in the Lord. Because what they ultimately want is the Lord and because he always satisfies. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. So in the midst of this time of difficulty, they have abundance of water. Springs and then rains water their lives. There's a writer... Uh, that I want to quote to you, this lady named Cynthia Heimel. Uh, she wrote for a publication called The Village Voice. And she wrote this column, this, this column and, and she reported on how she watched some friends of hers go from anonymity to Hollywood stardom. And once they had, had, had made this transition, all of a sudden they're rich and famous, to their horror, they found that they were no more fulfilled and happy than before. And the experience actually deepened their emptiness. Maybe you experienced a little tidbit of this in your home. I think we did. Um, we, have, we have this great anticipation for Christmas. We're all excited about opening these gifts. We open the gifts and we're more unhappy than we were before. All of a sudden, there is more discontent in our lives than there was before. There's more bickering than there was before. There's more screaming at each other than there was before. This is the way life works. This, this, this lady, uh, Cynthia Heimel, she goes on to say, the experience actually deepened their emptiness, turning them howling and insufferable. And then she surmised, this is a quote, from her. She says, if God really wants to play a rotten practical joke on us, 
He grants our deepest wishes and then giggles merrily as we begin to realize we want to kill ourselves. That's a miserable way to live. And, and, and when I read this, what I thought of was John Calvin. He, he has this, this piece in the Institutes called A Meditation on a Future Life. You, I would... It'd be a great thing to read. If you've got some time over the holidays, uh, you go read John Calvin's Meditation on a Future Life. It will, it will really uh, help your perspective. What he says basically is, God is going to make sure that you're miserable because he wants to turn you to himself. God is going to, to, to take every other thing that you might worship and make, use it to make you howling and insufferable. God is going to take every other God that you might seek to find happiness in, and he's going to use it as what Cynthia Heimel calls a, a rotten practical joke. And what he wants you to find, what he wants you to find is that he is the only thing that will satisfy you. And if you'll seek your satisfaction in the Lord, then money will just become money that you can use to provide for your family. And your job will just become a, a, a good way for you to employ your talents and your gifts. And your relationships will become a context in which you can honor the Lord. Everything will fall into place if you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And you'll find that the Valley of Baca is a place of springs. It's like the, the early rains cover it with pools. And thus, verse 7, these people who are like this, these people who long to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in the temple and, and who enjoy God's strength through the difficulties of the journey, look at verse 7. They go from strength to strength. They start out at a place of strength, trusting the Lord, and they proceed through a place of strength to a destination that is strong and is characterized by strength. And then look at the end of verse 7. Each one appears before God in Zion. That's the place of strength because God is the stronghold. It's ultimately, it's ultimately God's presence that these people want. Verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Now, he hasn't told us what his prayer is yet. So far, he's just talking about um, how wonderful the temple is in verse 4 and how much he wants to go there to enjoy God's presence. And then what a blessing it is to walk with God through life in verses 5 through 7. But, but the focus so far, verses 1 through 4, has been on God's dwelling place at the temple and then on the, the happiness of trusting God to get there in verses 5 through 7. And then a new element comes in in verse, verse 9. And this element, I think, brings in the broader story of the Old Testament. So verse 9, he says, Behold our shield, O God. And, and here, understanding Hebrew parallelism really helps us. Because basically what he said in that first line, Behold our shield, he's going to restate in the second line. Look, that matches behold, on the face of your anointed that matches shield. The anointed is the king from the line of David. And, and what the psalmist is asking the Lord to do is look with favor on the face of his anointed, who is 
the shield of God's, God's people. It's like he's taking number 6, 24 through 26. Um, may, the, may the face of the Lord shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And he's applying that to the Messiah from the line of David. Lord, look with favor on your anointed king. Why would he want that? He wants that because he wants what Psalm 2 talks about. Psalm 2, ask of me, the Lord says to the Messiah, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll be the king over all the earth. Now, why is the psalmist praying for this? Because if the king from David's line reigns over all the earth, then God's good law applies everywhere. And God's presence is extended everywhere. And the joy that this psalmist knows of, of, in, of experiencing God and finding satisfaction in God can be experienced by all people. The commandments of the Lord, like thou shalt not murder, they're not in the Bible to keep us from doing things that, that would really bring us strength and power and satisfaction. They're in the Bible to keep us from doing things that would ruin our lives. As Jill and I were discussing uh, the, the, the O.J. Simpson uh, case, uh, I, I said to her, I, I think this is a lot like Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment. In that novel, the main character commits what could be described as the perfect crime. He, he commits, he, he's a person, the, the character in the novel, who has uh, rejected the knowledge of God, and so he's rejected the Bible's morality. He thinks the, these are things that, that the strong use to control the weak. And so he, he reasons that the right thing to do, the good thing to do, is to kill that wealthy, useless pawnbroker woman who has all that money, kill her, take her resources, and then use it for the good of humanity. Do good for people with her money. And, and as, he, as he works this out in his mind, he can't find any reason not to do this because he's rejected the knowledge of God. And he's rejected the Bible as an as a authoritative source. And what he finds is that he makes himself absolutely sick. He's a wreck. He, he, his, his health is just destroyed because his soul is in such torment over the agony of these ideas. And then he brings himself to do it. He murders her. And, and everything works out perfectly. It's the perfect crime. Nobody saw him. He has an alibi. There are other people who are shady characters who could be blamed for the crime. He gets away with the money. It looks like everything's going to work out perfectly. It's almost like a man committing a murder and then being acquitted of it. But what he finds is that he can't live with himself. The knowledge of what he's done so torments him that, that he, he just gets sicker and sicker. And he starts having these horrific nightmares. And, and he, then he has these hallucinations of people finding the gold that he's hidden. And eventually he realizes the only way for me to have any sense of psychological peace is to go and confess my sin. It's to go and, and turn myself in. So the psalmist understands all this, and he wants everybody everywhere to live under God's good instructions. 
The instructions of the Lord are not there to deny you pleasure. They are there to help you find the way to pleasure. And the psalmist wants it to be enjoyed by everybody. So look at the explanation in verse 10. Verse 9, basically what he prays in verse 9 is, Bless the King, your Messiah. Why? Verse 10, because a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. When I, when I read this verse, I thought of um, Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of Billy Graham. Um, she, they asked her once, they said to her, is it hard for you, for your husband to be away so much? And, and she responded, I mean, this would be a great thing to have your wife say of you, wouldn't it? She said, um, Billy Graham is such a man that a week with Billy is better than a year with any other person. What she was saying is what this psalmist is saying. God is so good and so superior to anything else that can be experienced that one day with him is better than a thousand days anywhere else. And this is why he says in verse 10 there, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He's making a choice here. He's saying, I mean, the Hebrew verb here really is, I chose. I chose to serve at God's temple rather than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Um, Wallace Stevens wrote this poem called Sunday Morning. And, he, and he, he, he's talking about life and he's talking about his experience. And, and he comes to a, a place in the poem where having described um, the, the realization of his hopes. And, and it's like he gets what he wants. And then he says, but in contentment, I still feel the need for an imperishable bliss. I still feel the need for an imperishable bliss. What he's getting at is the way that, you know, we realize a hope or we realize a happiness or a joy or a, a, an experience of satisfaction, and then it's gone. It's over. And what he's saying is, I want an imperishable experience of this bliss. And there is only one place where that can be had. And the psalmist is talking about it here. He says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Um, after O.J. was acquitted, uh, his friends are quoted in that documentary. And one of his friends said, O.J. thought that after the trial, he was going to pick right back up where he left off. And everybody was gonna, everything was going to be the way it was before. But it wasn't. It wasn't because what he had done... I mean, I'm revealing maybe my view of the thing. You go watch it. You decide for yourself. What he had done had ruined his life. And it had affected the people closest to him. The close friends of him, of his, were agreed that he was the only one that could have done it. That he did it. And that altered the way they related to him. They didn't want to be around him. They, they couldn't just hang out and have fun as friends anymore. And so what happened, what happened is O.J. just sort of gave himself over to the tents of wickedness. And it was an ongoing sense, an, you, you get from, from watching this, an ongoing sense of dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction, unhappiness, as he just gives himself over to the pursuit of pleasure. There is no gladness to be found there. 
And that's why the psalmist is saying, I'd rather be a doorkeeper at God's temple than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And then he gives another explanation in verse 11. So here's explanation number one in verse 10, why he wants the Lord to bless the Messiah so that the Messiah will reign everywhere is because a day in God's courts is better than a thousand. It's the best place to be. Explanation number two, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The sun is an image of of warmth and light and hope. This is what sunrise is about. Sunrise is about hope. The long night of waiting is over and hope dawns. That's what the Lord is. And then he's a shield. It's interesting. It's interesting that verse 11, he says, the Lord God is a sun and shield. And in verse 9, he had said, behold our shield. So it's like there's an association of the Lord himself with what the king is going to be for God's people. And in the Old Covenant, I think what they're, what they're thinking is along the lines of, our king is going to be godly. Our king is going to reign like Yahweh himself would reign. Our king is going to be what Adam was supposed to be, and he's going to image forth the character and the likeness of God. But now that Christ has come, we know the real meaning, the deepest meaning of this, don't we? Um, the, the, the king is the shield and the Lord is the shield because they are three persons who share one divine nature. And the king who came, the Lord Jesus, is God incarnate. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. I mean, I've just mentioned the way that O.J. lost favor. He lost favor with everybody. It was not the same for him after that incident. But if you walk with God, if you walk with God, you will enjoy favor. This is not health, wealth, prosperity. This is the Bible saying you need to trust the Lord. You need to believe that all the ways that you're being lured toward the tents of wickedness are going to ruin your life and steal the favor that you could enjoy. And that if you want that pleasure and you want that favor, you need to obey God's commandments. And it takes faith to do that. It takes faith to believe that living for myself is going to make me miserable. And living for other people, laying down my own desires, laying down what I want, and trying to make other people happy is what's going to bring me joy. It takes faith to believe that. And the psalmist is saying, he's testifying to us. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Um, You could translate this grace. The Lord gives grace and glory. There will be a lasting glory for those who hear the words. I mean, it's almost unimaginable, isn't it? That we might hear the words, well done. I mean, I don't know about you, But if by God's grace I hear those words, I'm going to be thinking, you're overlooking a lot. (laughs) And if you know everything there is, so the only way you can say that is through Christ. The only way you can say that is because of Christ. Because I know how I spent my time. I know how I frittered away opportunities. I know the choices that I made. It was not well done. But by your grace, by your mercy, this is your favor. And then the psalmist testifies again. Look at the end of verse 11. The psalmist says to us, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If we ask the question, what causes people to choose, rather than desiring to to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, what causes people to choose to dwell in the tents of wickedness? We know the answer, don't we? They're afraid, we fear, this is why we choose to sin, that we are going to miss out on some fleshly pleasure. We fear, well, if I obey, I'm going to... I'm going to miss the opportunity to enjoy this sinful pleasure that looks so enticing. And the psalmist is testifying to us. He's saying to us, The Lord does not withhold anything good from those who walk in integrity. And the path of sanctification is the path of believing that promise. It's believing I'm not going to miss out on good things if I crucify my flesh. And lay my life down for other people. I am not going to miss out on good things if I give my sister my thing that she wants. I'm not going to miss out on good things if I tell my brother that he can play the video game on the iPad. He can have my turn. I'm not going to miss. Because the Lord doesn't withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. And that leads the psalmist to this conclusion. In verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed is the one whose strength is in God. Verse 5, blessed is the one who dwells in God's house to sing his praise. Verse 4, blessed is the one whose trust is in God. So, So what we see here in this psalm is in verses 1 through 4, this desire to be in God's presence. Verses 5 through 8, this this summary of how the Lord provides for those even in the midst of affliction. And then in verses 9 through 12, this prayer, behold our shield, look on the face of the anointed, because it's better to be with you than anywhere else, because of who you are, God, and you don't withhold good, Because this is the most pleasurable way to live. That's that's what he's saying. So Psalm 84 is proclaiming to us that the surest path to our own personal maximum experience of pleasure is also the best thing that could happen to the whole world. How can this be? How can there be no conflict between what is best for us us personally and what is best for the world? Because what is best for us personally is the enjoyment of God's presence mediated to us by God's Messiah. And that is what God is going to do for the whole world. Do you know what Psalm 84, what the psalmist here is doing this morning? He's inviting you to know God this way. He's saying to you, You can be a person who knows deep contentment. You can be a person who knows God in such a way that in your deepest affliction, it's a place of springs, and you experience the early rains of God's blessings. You can be that kind. You can know God this way. And if you say to me, how? I want it. How do I get there? This is what I would say. You need to recognize 
that this is the path to satisfaction. So here's your application, all right? You need to recognize that this is the path to satisfaction. And you also need to recognize that we're warped and we're corrupted and we're bent and twisted. And what, what is really the path to satisfaction isn't always going to feel like the path to satisfaction. And so what we need to do is we need to discipline ourselves to stay on the path to satisfaction. How do we do that? Well, we need to inculcate, and this is a great time to think about these things, we need to inculcate spiritual disciplines into our lives. And I'm just going to talk about two. I'm just going to talk about Bible study and prayer. If knowing God is the most satisfying thing in the world, and if God is revealed in the Bible, your priorities ought to reflect a desire for the Bible. The way that you spend your time in 2017, if you, if you agree with me on everything I've said, money's not going to satisfy me, sex isn't going to satisfy me, influence isn't going to, power's not going to, none of that's going to satisfy me. God's going to satisfy me. That ought to be reflected in how you spend your time in the next year. It ought to be reflected in how much time you spend reading the Bible. And what we need to do is we need to look at our lives and we need to say, where can I work this in? How can I make this a daily feature of my life? And then we need to be relentless about making sure that we're in the Bible when we can be, when it's best for us. And I would, I'm going to throw this in as well. Um, I would encourage you to, to uh, Google the words if if you haven't, I mean, some of you maybe have already memorized all these verses. Google the words topical memory system navigators. There's this ministry organization called the Navigators, and they have this Bible memory uh, list of verses called the topical memory system. And they've got, these, they've got these various topics like living the Christian life. And then they'll have two verses in each one of those topics. And you could memorize a verse a week or two verses a week, and at the end, of, if you do this every week all year long, you're going to have a list of verses in your brain that you can go to when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, when you're, when you're lying in bed unable to get to sleep, you can start meditating on these verses that you've memorized. Or if you're a dad and you're like, what verses should I teach my kids to memorize? This is a great list. Just start drilling these verses into your children's minds. So, Bible study. We need to read the Bible. We should memorize the Bible. We should meditate on the Bible. Prayer. I would encourage you to just get a notebook. I've said this before. You've heard me say this. It's nothing new. Get a notebook. Write down your prayer requests. And then when God answers the prayers, note that down too. Write the date of the request. Write the date it's answered. You'll be amazed at God's faithfulness to you. We want to be these people described in Psalm 84. We want to be people who know that a day in the courts of the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. We want to be those whose lies, lives testify. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I want to read you one more quote. This is a quote from, from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. He says, Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. 
the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something that we grasped at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. Psalm 84 is saying to us that it is experiencing God. That's what we were created for. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures which tell us things that are better than we ever could have come up with in our own imagination. And Lord, we we thank you that you have not left us to these things that leave us howling and insufferable. We thank you that you mercifully gave. Lord, we praise you for being a God who doesn't seek his own, but who gives And Lord, you have given the best thing you possibly could have given. Father, in the gift of your son, you gave us something of infinite value, something that was irreplaceable, something that was most precious to you. And in that gift, Lord, you modeled this self-sacrificial love that lays itself down for the benefit of others. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to experience this love in such a way that we would be overwhelmed by it, transformed and remade into the same image, that we might be Christ-like, that we might be people who give ourselves away for the benefit of others. Do it, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.